Okay, this I'd never thought about this before, but I think you made this point really well. Trust minimization then hmm. is could equally be described as minimizing the opportunity for moral hazard. Hmm. Because the less we need to trust one another, the less opportunity the person entrusted has to deceive others effectively, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the that's I'm thinking of Zabo's work here, where he describes that as one of the main purposes of money. It's a trust mm-hmm. minimization tool. Um, we, I guess we could do some other things in this bucket too: capitalism, perhaps common law. Like we, mm-hmm. these are protocols that don't really deviate based on political agenda. It's kind of like a common rule set we can all abide by. So it minimizes the need to trust one another. We can just all play by the rules, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But fiat completely annihilates that right where now you are forced to trust with to absolutely trust your government and your central bank which are the least trustworthy institutions in human history i mean Mm. i was thinking about this the other day how there's a lot of people in this you know current covid paradigm we're in that are very, you know, oh, just trust the government and they're, they're going to set us straight and give us the vaccines we need and get us back on course and fix the economy, et cetera, et cetera. Is there one case in human history where trusting the government was ever a good strategy? <laughs> I mean, I couldn't think uh, of one. <laughs> yeah, I, and that that that's the role of propaganda, right? Like yeah. uh, it, it is to get us to comply uh, and, and it's it's interesting because like at least uh, in my reading of what propaganda is supposed to be, it isn't necessary to change your belief. It is more necessary to change your behavior. So mm. I find myself like putting on a mask, right, going yeah. going into certain venues and stuff. And that's really the purpose of that propaganda. It is this idea, okay, you're going to get in trouble and you're going to make other people feel bad or make them very suspicious of you if you're not wearing a mask. I, I remember going to Whole Foods and literally my my mask was just below my nose, right? And the cashier was like, <laughs> I was like, I was like what, what the heck is going on? Like, uh, really? Like, the you know, like, half a centimeter that like the, 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 like, and you know, I was talking, so it would go down and up yeah. and down and up. And, and she was like, she, she's like, I'm going to like call the cops on you or something. <laughs> um, but that, that's the level that that's what propaganda does is it gets conformity from people. Um, and it, it gets them to sort of like not question because it is so heavily, dependent on Im- images and it bypasses this reason circuit. Um, it, it, like if we reason through everything, uh, it would take a lot more time, but like we would be a lot more convicted in our, our decisions. Mm-hmm. And th- this is one of the things that I think Bitcoin has certainly taught me is mm-hmm. like, if you could reason through and figure out what's right and like trust it, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. that, that, that uh, instead of, Okay, well, I want this to be true, and you know, like that—that's sort of like the whole trust your gut kind of thing that mm-hmm. um, that propaganda tends to tends to like capitalize on. But but that is the role of propaganda, and why it is so evil and pernicious, um, you know, in a democratic society. And the thing about democracy that I I think Hoppe could have probably talked a lot more about 
is that there is a giant need for propaganda in a democracy. Um, there's still some need in a monarchy and so on, but there is way more in a democracy because there is way more politics in a democracy. So everything is at stake all the time. So there, there, especially under a fiat money monetary system where there's this giant prize of being able to control the money printer more or less. Mm -hmm. And if there is, then of course you're going to propagandize everything. You're going to politicize everything. You need pop propaganda in order to get support so that you can go into power and do whatever it is that you want. So um, we're in a hyper-politicized, hyper-propagandized society, um, which, you know, like, I, I, I think I would say that if Hapa's vision of a monarchy were in place, like that we would not be subject to, that we are subject to now, um, which which is, you know, I, I, I bet very bad for humanity in many ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well said. It's what jumped out at me here is if we, again, to your point, if we can trust reason itself, which is to trust our own ability to reason and trust that other humans have this capacity for reason, we we land on these systems. The again, trust minimization systems, right? Hard money, capitalism, common law, et cetera, which reduces the need to trust one another, which reduces moral hazard. So maybe this is the mechanism through which, you know, reason leading to innovation without coercion actually improves our morality to some extent, just because we have sounder rules, right? I think you said to me once that the stability of rules is the bedrock of peace, something like that. It's like when the rules can't change or be manipulated, your only option is to play by the rules, which if we're in a pure anarcho-capitalism uh, environment, that is to just serve the customer, right? You can't do anything else to enrich yourself. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to shift back and read another excerpt here. Um, and again, the author's just, we're still in the introduction. He's, he's making the case for a priori knowledge. And he describes it here as quote, according to the approach adopted here, theoretical propositions like the ones just cited are accepted for what they apparently are as statements about necessary facts and relations. As such, they can be illustrated by historical data, but historical data can neither establish nor refute them. Again, he's just putting the primacy on a priori over empirical knowledge. He goes on to say, quote, similarly, theoretical insights can rule out reports such as that increased consumption has led to increased production, economic growth, or that below market clearing, which would be maximum prices, have resulted in unsold surpluses of goods, or that the absent of, absence of democracy has been responsible for the economic malfunctioning of socialism as nonsensical. So he's basically saying all these things, again, a priori, these are all nonsensical. And the first one, the consumption... <laughs> has led to increased production, that's that's a Keynesian point, core Keynesian point. He goes on to say, as a matter of theory, only more saving in capital formation and or advances in productivity can lead to increased production. 
only guaranteed above market clearing, which is minimum prices, can result in lasting surpluses. And only the absence of private property is responsible for the economic plight under socialism. And to reiterate, none of these insights requires further empirical study or testing. To study or test them is a sign of confusion, unquote. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) this is incredible. It's incredible how he packs this much meaning into a paragraph that just annihilates everything that we've the, of Keynesian economics, basically, we just start there. State and socialism, yeah. Marxism, you know, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, he he demolishes a lot of stuff in that one paragraph. Yeah. So, how do we how do we get people to reestablish uh, respect or reverence for this approach to knowledge? Hmm. It's a good question. I well, quite frankly, I think a lot of people are just not interested. And part of it is that the current structure of civilization, uh, representative democracy, um, you know, uh, fiat money, uh, central bank-backed fiat money, um, things, that, and you know, a lot of countries have authoritarian governments too. Um, like there, there's such a dependence on images, propaganda, and all of that working, that people just are not that interested in reason, in logos, in, you know, like wrestling with concepts like we're talking about now and like actually going through and deriving truths. Instead, um, if they argue at all, it's from sort of like an emotional basis. I want this to be true and Mm. therefore you are wrong. Um, and it's completely backwards. There's no sort of like intellectual discovery. It, it, it is, uh, or exploration. It is, here's the conclusion I want and let's rationalize, right? Like most, most of that is just intellectual masturbation of, you know, Hey, let's, let's try to figure out some reasonable, uh, sounding way to get to X, something mm-hmm. to that effect. And that, that you know we're we're all drowning in propaganda so we become propagandists too where that's a lot easier uh a weapon to deploy than um than well-reasoned dialectic um mm-hmm. instead we sort of stay in the realm of rhetoric and what sounds good what what can be sloganized what uh what what can just sort of shut people up or something like that um, and that 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 tends to be the level of discourse. I don't know if we'll ever really get rid of that. Um, I, I I think it's just too effective Un, unless I, I I don't know maybe under a Bitcoin standard there's a lot more respect for logos for reason for um, you know thinking through things a certain way and not being susceptible to propaganda. Yeah, I mean, like for myself, I I purposefully don't watch ads or movies or TV shows or yeah, I, I try not to watch most things because it 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 has a tendency to influence me in ways that I can't necessarily detect. Mm. Um, but you know, I I can't help it, right? I still wear a mask when I when I when I go into a store that requires one. Uh, because I know there will be people that get mad at me or will yell at me 
I don't want to necessarily suffer some of the social consequences. And th those are sort of the, me um, the enforcement mechanisms that are out there. And those are very difficult to overcome through, mm. um, you know, like you have to be really convicted in your belief and it, it requires a strength of character that I don't, I, frankly, I don't think most people have to, to mm. be able to resist um, the level of sort of pressure to conform that that's out there uh, mm. based on propaganda. So yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a little bit dark, I, I, I guess what I'm saying. Um, I, I do believe that belief in God helps, uh, but it's by no means like um, sufficient. I think you need like a really deep conviction in God and mm -hmm. in the metaphysical world and, uh, you know, all, all of the things that go along with it. You really have to believe that they exist and are legit in order to be able to resist the bombardment of sort of very easy shortcuts to knowledge, which, you know, like we call propaganda. Mm. Yeah. I'm thinking there that it's similar on the moral side too, right? Where absent those convictions, let's just say to a uh, standard Christian morality, even like don't steal, right? Which is also a capitalistic morality. Without that, you're going to be incentivized really to steal anytime you think no one's looking, right? You think you can mm -hmm. just get ahead without um, being exposed to any consequences. So again, we're back to that unmooring just creates these destructive behaviors, either internally or collectively. Um, and I wonder, yeah, if the propaganda is so, there's so much of it because it's profitable, right? Again, it's like they're, mm -hmm. it's a signaling mechanism to get the ruled to be passive or willfully ignorant or deceived in some other way to where they just keep going to their nine to five and, you know, drinking on Saturday and Sunday and watching football and not asking questions, <laughs> whatever it is that lets them, that keeps them sufficiently productive mm -hmm. to be taxed, but um, also docile enough, I guess, to be taxed. Mm -hmm. And this, this yeah. the, are the state, because to your point about wearing a mask into a shop, like a lot of it is, mm -hmm. again, it's you being practical. It's like, well, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to go in the store. They want me to wear the mask. I need the mm -hmm. darn groceries. Might as well wear the mask. There's also the, element of just being a considerate human, right? You know mm. that if there's even one person that's just going to completely flip out about it, like the the cash register <laughs> lady you said that freaked out about your mask on blow your nose, mm -hmm. we have this, most of us have this proclivity to just want to, you know, it's not expensive for me to put on a mask if it makes you feel that much better about it. It's like, okay, I'll mm -hmm. do it. But it's so pernicious because the state depends on that. They need they need to stigmatize mask and compliance and all these things, I guess, in an effort to get you to conform and resign to their rulership mm. and taxation ultimately. So it's like, it's so tricky. You know, they're preying on human <laughs> nature itself. Yeah. I, they're, they're short circuiting your lizard brain, right? Like the, yeah. the part that like responds to images and okay, well that that's a very fast argument. That's, um, you know, 
you're you're having to account for other people falling for propaganda and that in turn makes you fall for the propaganda at least yeah. in behavior though maybe not in belief so it, it ends up you know basically giving them what they want you you end up and I, I, I'm sure there are lots of people that didn't want to get vaccinated, mm-hmm. but got vaccinated because their jobs depended on it. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so and like it, it was literally get vaccinated or you're fired. And a lot of people ended up doing that. Th- this is this is at the heart of what coercion uh, through propaganda kind of ends up being. Now, with vaccination, I think they failed on a propaganda level on that mm-hmm. because uh, there, there is significant resistance uh, in, mm-hmm. in society. Where, whereas, you know, like the actual lockdown, like uh, last March uh, to April, maybe even May to June, like very few people questioned that. There, there mm-hmm. were people that that were questioning, but it was like, there's so much we don't know. Maybe this mm-hmm. is the right way. Maybe they actually know what they're talking about, and. Even if you disagreed with the lockdown, you still stayed home, right? Like mm-hmm. very, very people, right. people actually like, like went and did a party or something like that. So, in a in a sense, there there is sort of like a a, a network effect to the propaganda that that's mm-hmm. very um, pernicious. Uh, the don't and there there are like ways to po- fight propaganda, but you usually have to use propaganda to fight propaganda, and mm-hmm. it does nothing for the actual reasoning. Um, and you you hope that people can reason their way back to the thing that you got them to believe through memes or whatever. But but that 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 that's more or less like what what you have uh, your only choices are to fight back with propaganda. And in Bitcoin, we have plenty of memes, right? Lots of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. The, the, this is, you know, half on staying poor or, you know, like uh, number go up or whatever. There, There's lots of different memes that that kind of work. Um, and they, they, they get sort of like a conformity, but you also get like a lot of, unreasoned kind of bullying and things like that, which mm-hmm. are not necessarily good. Uh, and there, there's like, I, I would love for everybody to be in that uh, like sort of a priori knowledge, rationalistic sort of go step by step and really bring people into Bitcoin that way. But that's not how most people are. And that's mm-hmm. sort of a reality that we have to deal with in a world like today. Um, unfortunately, like uh, you're, you're right though, that for most people, they are sort of like dulled into it and they, they are what Jacques and Law would say, they, they are like working for the system. They, they are extremely efficient for the system, right? Like mm-hmm. they do exactly what the system wants. Um, in this case, it would be either the system of democracy or whatever. And, and like, they end up like, severely depressed and they don't know why <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's because you're in an environment that's completely unnatural to the human soul um you know in a uh, like you know we're sitting in chairs and we have computer screens and you know we're not seeing like any dirt or flowers or mm-hmm. plants or animals and uh we're not outside we're indoors all day like th- this is a completely artificial environment for people and we're bombarded with images, which is not normal historically. 
it's it's completely disconnecting to what makes us human. Mm. Um, and yet we think we're doing really well, right? Like it's mm. it's a very strange dichotomy. And th- this is ultimately what propaganda has led us to where we're happy with stuff like fiat money, um, sort of like, you know, we're, we're happy with democracy. We're happy with being locked down or whatever. And we, we think it's normal um, despite it being like if reason from first principles, it it's not, it's, mm. it, it's completely strange and abhorrent and um, anomalous. And uh, I mean, in a, in a sense, you kind of should be depressed if you are in that sort of environment. It, it's uh, it's to the credit of propaganda that more people aren't. Yeah. Um, certainly. I I like this angle on game theory Hmm. built into the compliance itself in that, I mean, the state really is effectively running game theory on us, right? That that we are complying in our behavior, if not in our beliefs, to your point, if nothing more than in anticipation of others complying. So you'll wear the mask because you think others, you know, even want you to wear Mm -hmm. the mask. So then it is necessary that we play the game back. It is necessary that we propagandize against uh, coercion and, you know, propagandize people towards truth or Bitcoin. Is that, you think this is a necessary element of whatever this is, this ideological struggle that we're engaged in? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. Uh, Like the actual word propaganda, um, comes from the church actually they mm. they wanted to propagate the gospel right <laughs> that's mm. it. and it had a very neutral sort of um uh connotation it, it wasn't evil or good it was mm. a way to make sure that the gospel went um went out to a lot of people um, and it, it wasn't really until you know uh, I think World War II, where it became sort of like this very dirty word where you're using it to sort of like manipulate people and so on. Um, but it, it is kind of a modern phenomenon in the sense that it is just so it uh, in, instead of being very local, um, which it originally was, it was, you know, like in 1850, you didn't have mass media. You didn't have like sort of monoculture across like. Uh, entire countries and stuff like that. You, uh, you know, you were saying things that uh, to help it spread. That 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 was the idea with mass media, with television, with movies, with the internet, with YouTube, with um, you know, all kinds of things that uh, sort of influence us. It, it's it's gone kind of it's become sort of like a nuclear weapon and Mm. like basically it's being dropped all the time. So the question is, do you use it or not? I think the Christian in me says you probably shouldn't. It it's uh, you know, short circuiting reason is short circuiting the word it's short circuiting logos Um, the ability to, you know, like what, what makes us human is this ability to think through things um, and to 
not be an animal. I, I, I think when you add propaganda, it makes us closer to being an animal and less of a human being. Um, where we just sort of like react. It, ironically enough, this is basically what Keynesians think humans are, right? Like, uh, you know, yeah. they just respond to certain incentives. And in a sense, I think like another, you know, however many generations of this, and we actually do become homo economicus, which, you know, like kind of does what the government says and so on. But in the meantime, we have free will. We have the human spirit, we we have life, we have this ability to think for ourselves, uh, which I think makes us very deeply human. And really, like, it, I, I think that that part is very important to make sure we continue to develop instead of sort of like short circuiting. And it's, it, it's in a way sort of like, dehumanizing mm. to subject others to propaganda in a way. Um, you know, I, 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 but yeah, I don't know. My, my thoughts aren't complete on this. What do you, what do you think? This is extremely murky. Um, and I, you know, Oh man, because on one, in one sense, you're right. It's like, don't, lower yourself to the tactics of your enemy perhaps mm. um but then in the other sense it's like well if it's necessary to win the war mm. then you might have to you know fight dirty so to speak which is a kind of what we're describing here um i don't know i think it's very much a moral kind of conundrum i would like to believe that which is not, it doesn't even make sense. Cause I'm like, okay, if you knew that it was going to work, then you could do it, but you don't, you don't know anything's going to work. So. <laughs> um, but they seem to be, I mean, if we're just talking about memes, you know, I don't know where you, the other thing is, where do you draw the line? What is propaganda versus what is just a message? You know, mm. um, you know, the memes see to be, seem to be very effective in Bitcoin for Bitcoin and propagating the message of Bitcoin. So, I don't see any issue with that. I guess you I mean, I guess the line really has to be drawn in the authenticity of the message. Like once you start saying something that's not true or that's less true, let's say, then you've, you've crossed that. Again, I don't know if it's a bright line, but you're crossing the line into immoral territory. If you're propagandizing with a message that's, False or less true. Well, so here's the thing about propaganda: the best propaganda is all true. It's all true, mm. and uh, and uh, and the way propaganda works is that if you have to lie in your propaganda, you're doing a very bad job. Mm. Um, the way propaganda works is you tell the truth, but not the whole truth, just the truth that you want them to know, so that they change their behavior. Um, and in that sense, it's deceiving because. Mm. Like you, you understand certain things uh, a certain way, rather, uh, like it gives you sort of like the appearance of reasoning, right? Like mm -hmm. here's, um, here are certain things. Um, and, and the, you know, the, this, I think, Go uh, like Goebbels said this, like he's like the father of modern propaganda and stuff. Like, don't lie, right? Like you, mm -hmm. you, you tell the truth, but you tell it in a way that, only emphasizes certain things and 
it's mostly like lies of omission, if that mm. makes sense. It's you, you, you tell the story a certain way, kind, kind of like your, your CFO mentor. It's, it's about presenting the chart, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the chart that you want them to go away with so that they will do what you think is best or whatever, mm-hmm. or puts, uh, you know, you in the best light or something, something to that effect mm-hmm. or the company in the best light or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's propaganda. That's mm-hmm. the process of, picking out the best and you know there there might be sort of like other things that are very uh you know that look very bad so you omit them from whatever or if you do address them you spin it a certain way or whatever that that's the essence of propaganda mm. um now is bitcoin doing that um to some degree but you know i i have to say i i i can't be all pessimistic about this because in a sense like since this sort of like the last 10 years, I've seen the growth of podcasts and specifically long form podcasts like this mm-hmm. one. And this is all reasoning and logos. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's, it's not, here's an image. Like the, the reason why propaganda has to be quick is because people have no tolerance for it. You can't, right. no one pays attention to four hours of propaganda. Although if you've, uh, been in a timeshare presentation. I'm sorry, but that that is kind of what it is. <laughs> but uh, but you know, like it's it's very difficult to sit through four hours of timeshare yeah. presentations, right? Like that. That's why people um, like you know, advertising is 30 seconds or something to that effect. Uh, and even if in a movie, if there's a propaganda element, the store better better be really, really good because people are not going to just sit through and absorb propaganda. Like there, there's an art to it that there, there's value that has to be added on in order for people to absorb it. Um, so in a sense, I think there is a deep hunger for the dialectic, the reasoning, the, um, the rational uh, rather than the you know empirical or the image-based propaganda or whatever mm-hmm. i mean there there are things where people discuss empirical numbers all the time and stuff but it's always in the context of some framework by which they can discuss it so um you know i don't know maybe maybe it make it makes a comeback or the memes are an entry point into uh, some of the deeper con- conversations where you can reason through exactly why um, you know you you end up believing in uh, X, mm-hmm. Y, or Z, and you know getting to that point from first principles, I think, is a very valuable thing. But yeah, I like again, it's not for everybody necessarily. Not everyone listens to three-hour podcast, whatever it is that you do. Um, but, uh, but, but it, there, there is something about that, which I think a lot of people really do appreciate um, instead of the quick propaganda thing, which is, hey, it's, you know, like we're going to believe this now mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, so um, let, short let me ask you, Let me ask you about one that pops in my mind as we're talking about mm-hmm. this is that, I mean, it, it's, almost infamous at this point, this world economic forum piece where it's the guy smiling and says by 2030, (laughs) you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Mm -hmm. Like, okay. I would classify that as propaganda in my mind, Mm -hmm. because that's completely BS like a priori. (laughs) 
you know, you need private property to, it's an, mm-hmm. it's an element of freedom. It's an aspect of freedom. Private property mm. is like so fundamental to human freedom that I can't, mm. there's, how could you have it without it? Yet they're mm. saying the exact opposite, right? Like mm. you'll be you're totally wrong. unfree, you'll own nothing and you'll be completely <laughs> happy. Hey everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. What part of that is true? Is it just your well, own so, nothing in 2030? Is that the truth? Well, so I, I mean, I, I suspect he wasn't talking to people like us. He, he was um, talking to, I don't know, maybe more people in, that are like socialist leaning or something to that effect. And there is sort of like a stoic sensibility to that, right? Like you'll own nothing in the sense that nothing owns you or something like oh. that. Um, that that I think he he's maybe like tapping into. But I, I don't think that was a particularly good piece of propaganda because mm-hmm. everyone's making fun of it. That mm-hmm. that That's how you know it wasn't very good propaganda. If it was good propaganda, you'd be repeating it all day long. Like people will say, you know, you should go vote, like as if it's a moral imperative oh, every day. Okay. That's how you know that was effective propaganda because like, you know, do your civic duty. What what the hell is a civic duty, right? Like uh, that the whole concept is based on public property and, yeah. um, you know, like shared ownership or something like that, which we know exist. is flawed from this yeah. book. Um, but but that that's something that's that's very much repeated, and people, you know, tend to uh, you know like kind of almost go overboard with that. Um, you know, it's bad propaganda when a lot of people are making fun of it. At that point, it's like, okay, like they they completely failed or they didn't know their audience or they didn't anticipate it being re, uh, like sort of referred to this way. But there's effective propaganda all day long. You just have to kind of like watch out for it and see it. Um, you know, I mean, like you will own nothing and be happy could be a stoic mantra. I think that could be like a very reasonable way to look at the world uh, given to the right audience. The guy who said it though, and the context in which he said it, uh, like, and being who he was, as he said, it wasn't very good propaganda because everyone knew that what, like, it just sounds really arrogant. It, it, It doesn't trigger the right sort of emotions and it doesn't get you to behave differently. Um, you know, like thinking, oh, okay, well, I'm not going to own anything. So, you know, and I'm going to be okay with it. it it's it. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say that was good. Propaganda. Okay. That that's helpful. But then it, I'm back in this 
quagmire of what's an authentic message versus what's propaganda. You know, I guess, I guess <laughs> if it's really good propaganda, you won't know. You'll basically, yeah. it will possess you. Yeah. Well, I, this, this, one of the things that, uh, that, uh, you know, Jaco all po- points out is if you think you can objectively determine what's propaganda and what's not, um, you're the most susceptible to propaganda because mm. the minute your defenses are down, then you're, you're going like, they'll present everything that's true. And you think, okay, well, I could tell truth from false. That's, that's mm. good enough. But that's not because there's, that's not the whole truth. It's just partial truth. And that's mm. what most propaganda is. It gives you just one side. And this is why, you know, it's so like, like, uh, like when you watch Fox news or MSNBC or something like that, they really only just tell one side of the tr- story. And the thing is like that one side of the story, most of the time, they're just telling you straight facts yeah. about that one side of the story. They just don't tell you the other side of the story okay. so that yeah. you have this sort of like sense of righteous indignation. Um, whenever you hear that, that's what he calls like one of the hallmarks of good propaganda is that you feel this righteous indignation, right? Like it's like, uh-huh. oh man, I like those people are doing so, like if you're feeling that, it's like, okay, they've short-circuited your rational, like, uh, you know, looking okay. through first principles because anger is one of the like core emotions that most people feel. Um, and once they feel it, it's like very hard to get rid of and you know, untinge anything that was associated with it. Um but that that that's when you know, and you know, like if you watch the evening news or something like that, it's all stories like that, right? Like if it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, how could this person do this? How could you know, like righteous indignation about, um, you know, they they do that with a lot of like school shootings, for example. Mm-hmm. They'll make it about guns or whatever, and it's like, well, you know, it, and they're trying to do that with vaccines. They're just not doing a very good job, right? It's mm-hmm. like somebody. That's uh, that that was uh, that had a vaccine is dying of COVID somehow, and they blame the unvaccinated people. <laughs> they're trying to do something similar, but they're just doing a really bad job of it. But that's supposed to cause sort of like some level of righteous indignation at the people that aren't conforming or something to that effect. That that's when you know, um, and that's the hallmark of good propaganda is that like if, if you tell somebody that. Uh, that that's telling you you should go out and vote and you go no i'm not i don't i don't want to they have a righteous indignation towards you right like they Mm. they almost feel like oh how could you say that like that's so wrong or whatever Mm. um that's how you know it was good propaganda Mm. interesting yeah so we're back to rationalism then being really critical to overcome or diffuse propaganda, right? Like if you get Mm -hmm. hit with a good piece of propaganda, Mm -hmm. if you filter that through proper rationalism, then you can determine whether it's true or false. Mm -hmm. Um, That makes a lot of sense to me. It's still, there's a lot of subjectivity in there, but I guess the, the rationalism just cuts through the subjectivity in a lot of ways. That's the hope. And yeah. you, you have to be really grounded to be able to go through that process. Um, yeah. if, if you like, if you have sort of like any radical relativism, even a little bit in your head, then it's going to be very difficult to come out that way. Cause you're going to be like, well, did I really do this right? Especially if you're not practicing, right? Like this mm. is, 
like if you're not used to reasoning through from first principles to a particular conclusion and being able to, you know, do the work of hard work of philosophy of, mm. you know, deriving certain truths, then you're going to doubt yourself because you're going to be like, did I derive this right? Am I, mm. am I crazy here? And then um, you're, you'd rather kind of like, trust other people with like, cause it's much easier or like this image or this emotion or whatever. And that, that, that is unfortunately where a lot of people fall because they don't get trained in philosophy, mm-hmm. <laughs> like right. deriving metaphysical truth or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, you know, like people in ancient Greece did people in ancient yeah. Rome did right. Like this, this, one of the first things that you study is logic and philosophy and like, um, you know, dialectic and rhetoric and all that stuff, um, you know, and they, they purposefully separate the two to show you or how to actually reason through it and then how to convince people, which tends to be very different. So, um, so is that by yeah. design then is this because that would help people autonomously dispel status delusions if we're all well-equipped with rationalism? I would hope so. And that, that this was traditionally why you had, so many barriers to like ruling or to, you know, even voting, right? Like uh, for a long time, Um, the idea was that you would set a high bar so that, uh, you know, you wouldn't be subject to the madness of crowds or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the founding fathers were really afraid of sort of like, uh, you know, rule, mob rule and things Mm -hmm. of that nature. Um, that, That was a real deep concern for them Mm. uh, because they knew that the mob could very easily be persuaded by an eloquent speaker or something to that effect. Mm. Um, And this was thought to be at the time, like the, the critical flaw in direct democracy. Um, Mm. And I, I, I don't know the real answer to that question, but we, we don't have direct democracy for that reason. This is why we Mm. have representative democracy. Um, but in a sense, the, those people are subject to the same things. Um, we're not necessarily choosing people based on their ability to reason through um, to from first principles and have deep convictions about, you know, like what is right instead of um, sort of like seeing where the political wind is and mm-hmm. switching their allegiance. But then this is sort of like the age old thing about politics is when you when people are doing the selecting, well, they're they're probably more going to be persuaded by rhetoric, um, mm-hmm. and this is why we get like very empty political slogans all the time. So, it's, oh, man, it's 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 a tough uh, question. How do you, how do you fix this whole system? <laughs> um, I I like the point too about righteous indignation being kind of the telltale sign because that's when you've you've observed or witnessed something that so um antagonizes i guess your moral fiber mm-hmm. that you think a political coercive response is justified right like you mm-hmm. made the you made the point of a school shooting maybe justifying you know firearm uh regulation or ban or something like that mm-hmm. um I keep having this thought experiment in my mind, like this all comes back to property being viable too, because Mm. it's in this hypothetical world where person and property could not be 
aggressed against, you just flat out wouldn't care what anyone was doing, right? Like if someone had mm. a different opinion than you, you just, you literally wouldn't care because there'd be nothing to be done about it. You couldn't yeah. use force on them. You couldn't take their stuff. So you just, you know, go somewhere else basically. Mm. And I think that's a, that's a point that Rothbard hits on a lot too, is separating the moral and the legal, where I guess mm. if you experience that feeling of righteous indignation, you can feel that way morally about someone else's actions or decisions, but that doesn't necessarily mean you that uh, legal compulsion is justified, hmm. right? So that seems to be kind of the blurry line we're all contending with. But um, if yeah, it, it is because we want to sort of like we feel entitled to some, whenever we have public property, I think you're absolutely right. There, there is sort of like a lot of righteous indignation on all sides. So like, for example, there's, there was this like homeless uh, tenting issue on public property. This was like along a very beautiful stretch of Austin where mm -hmm. like right along the river where you can like go run and stuff. A lot of people use it, uh, but you know, the homeless were tenting there. Right. And it was, righteous indignation on both sides, right? For mm -hmm. the people on the left, it's like, well, where are these people going to go? And this is public property. They, you know, they should have the right to use it. And on the right, it was, hey, like this, like go build them a shelter or something if you want to mm -hmm. do that. This is a place for like leisure and running and for the public. But that came, that righteous indignation on both sides came as a result of everybody thinking that they know what's best for this public property. So yes. it's property that no one owns that everyone feels entitled to do whatever yes, they want. Exactly. And that, that, that's the problem. Um, and at heart, I, I suspect that that's uh, that, that sense of entitlement of uh, you know, like sort of thinking that it's yours uh, like sort of sometimes extends to other people. If uh, you know, I, I, I remember once like some some parent yelled at me because my son was playing with uh, like a ball or something that was too small. He's like, he could choke on that, you know, I'm like, dude, are you his dad? Like, I'm, I'm his dad. I, I, like, what, why, why are you telling me this? Um, but a lot a lot of people feel that way because they think that they are entitled to something that they're not. Uh, and yeah. like having good property boundaries is a part of propaganda as well in, in that like if you're sort of raised up socialist you think it's all public property in which case you have some claim to it um no matter whose it is so you know like for a socialist you know other people's children are fair game like they're yeah. they're part of the public you know property of, of, of some kind which would be an anathema to a lot of other people so um yeah, I like it really does come down, like what you said, to this notion that we can sh like have public property, yeah. which is not really by owned by anybody, which is really a way of saying, you know, somebody owns it for some short period of time before passing it on to somebody else. Yeah. So this is a really important point because earlier Hoppe, he destroyed that basically. Like it's public property is an oxymoron, I'm pretty sure, because mm -hmm. here's my thinking, at least on this. So private property would be the rights and responsibilities for an asset, 
right? Mm-hmm. This is your relationship with an asset that is socially acknowledged. So no one can just come in and sleep on your couch or take your car for a joyride. Like you have the right to the benefits of that asset, but you're also responsible for its upkeep or maintenance. And with public property, we've somehow just muddled all this together and you have people fighting over the rights. But then also, you know, like you said, with the people in Austin, um, who gets to use this nice walkway, the, the homeless people setting up their tents or the, you know, people that want to go for a jog. So people, the public, I guess, fighting over the rights to this quote unquote public property, but at the same time, trying to abdicate the responsibilities, right? This is the tragedy of the commons. No one wants to spend money to take care of it or maintain it uh, because it's not theirs, right? They don't have accountability to that. So it seems to me that this oxymoron of public property <laughs> would generate a ton of righteous indignation and tragedy of the commons. Mm-hmm. And yet this mm-hmm. is what most property in the world is. <laughs> I'm not sure actually on that last point, how much is public versus private, but there's a lot of public lands in the U S mm-hmm. um, and they're not being used very well. Um, it's, yeah. you know, like, uh, yeah, it, it, the word property comes from Latin proprius, yeah. which means one's own. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. It's like public one's own. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It's, it really is kind of a, uh, an oxymoron in that sense. Um, but yeah, the, the, this is a conundrum because you have, um, you know, a bunch of people that think they own something when they actually don't. And like when, when you have fuzzy boundaries, you're going to have bad neighbors. And that's yeah. basically, I think what like, like, uh, oh, uh, one way to sum up Papa's argument about property is yeah. you you just have very fuzzy boundaries, and therefore, you know, people aren't going to be nice to each other, and it's uh, it's kind of evident, especially now. We've established the primacy of rationalism over empiricism, which is to say, a priori versus experimentally derived knowledge, um, and. The author then uses this framework, which is you know, really just deducing knowledge from first principles, essentially, to make the case that we got into at the beginning of this series, <laughs> that you know, of all the modes of governance in the world, uh, it, I, I think he says that monarchy would, is the best, mm. uh, especially compared to, to democracy, which he starts to go into in chapter one. So I'm going to read just a couple of excerpts here. He says, quote, the principal advantage that the political economist and philosopher has over the mere historian and the benefits to be gained from the study of political economy and philosophy by the historian is his knowledge of pure a priori social theory, which enables him to avoid otherwise unavoidable errors in the interpretation of sequences of complex historical data and present a theoretically corrected or reconstructed and decidedly critical or revisionist account of history. So again, we're talking about that, the he who controls the chart controls the narrative. If you, if you're armed with a priori rationalism, you can filter through that, the propaganda, Mm -hmm. I guess, that someone might, Mm -hmm. might offer. And so then he goes into, um, 
he starts to, to flush out monarchy and he says, quote, in short, monarchical government is reconstructed theoretically as a privately owned government, which in turn is explained as promoting future orientedness hmm. and a concern for capital values and economic calculation by the government ruler. Democratic government is reconstructed as a publicly owned government, which is explained as leading to present orientedness and as a disregard or neglect of capital values in government rulers. And the transition from monarchy to democracy is interpreted accordingly as civilizational decline. Hmm. So again, a priori deduction saying that and we, we described this number of ways last time, like uh, democratic rulers lacking skin in the game, lacking mm. a long-term capital interest in the tax base mm. causes policymaking and decision-making to be decidedly more short-sighted and short-termism suffer more from sh- short-termism than the monarch, right? Because the monarch, mm-hmm. like the person that has a really good private property, right? he is incentivized to take care of that asset to see that mm-hmm. it is long lived to see that it, he doesn't overly extract from it or wage too much war, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, Hoppe's just done a great job laying this foundation of knowledge. And then from that, he's making the case that, that monarchy is superior to democracy and other forms of statism. Mm. Yeah. And that, um, that, that whole passage is great. And I, I think he's essentially saying history is written by the winners. And a lot of history is really just forms of propaganda. And mm-hmm. it really does take sort of like a theoretical framework or a priori knowledge in order to cut through a lot of the those claims and examine them critically mm-hmm. and really have a good sense of what actually happened. Um, and specifically with regard to monarchy versus democracy, uh, I think his point is that democracy has been exalted higher than it should have been, and monarchy has been put down way more than it should have been. Mm-hmm. Now, there is like we're, we're bathed in the propaganda of democracy, so we're going to have a favorable disposition towards stuff like you know, everyone's equal before the law and there, there is no like ruling class or upper class or uh, royalty or, um, uh, or, you know, people of the court and things like that. Mm. Um, Which, you know, like, I I think there are structural flaws in monarchy too, but Mm -hmm. I, I, I think the big thing he points out, the big weakness of democracy is this concept of public property, which causes hyper-politicization, mm-hmm. which uh, causes just very short time orientation or very high time preference behavior on behalf of you know, all the government officials and so on, uh, whereas monarchy does the opposite. And that alone, I think, at least on a long-term basis over, uh, you know, over sort of like resources and stuff like that, it does build up civilization better than something like a democracy. So his contention then is that a lot of the progress that we've made technologically and so on is in spite of democracy and not 
because of democracy, because mm-hmm. um, you can have monarchy and some form of capitalism together. Um, but as he points out, like really like the democracy that we're used to is actually like there's socialist elements to it that uh, especially the common property stuff, uh, which which detracts significantly from, um, I guess, the building up of civilization. Yeah, definitely. And he again, that I love the way you put that earlier about the blurriness of lines, the distinction mm-hmm. between public and private property, because that is the crux of the issue here. Mm-hmm. Is that in a monarchy, you have more well defined or less blurry lines between ruler and ruled? You know, there, I get, I assume in a monarchy, there's no public property. I, I don't know if he went into that or not, but. There's a lot I don't less. think so. If it, if it's considered public, it's the king's. That's it. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. it's it's yeah. all private property. Effectively, you yeah. it either belongs mm-hmm. to the king or belongs um, mm-hmm. to the ruled um, mm-hmm. in one way or another. And so, I do, I do want to throw this out for him though, because he's not. Mm-hmm. You know, people hear this and they're like, "What are you talking about? You're talking about going <laughs> back in time to monarchy? Like these bitcoiners are crazy." <laughs> and he's. I think purely arguing within the context of saying you have to choose a governance model, right? Mm-hmm. But he's also saying that statism or uh, any anything, I think he's actually an anarcho-capitalist, right? So he mm-hmm. would be against coercion in general. But he's saying if you have to choose one of these statist models, which involves coercion, compulsion, and violence, that monarchy is preferred, um, and so he says this, his quote, despite the comparatively favorable portrait presented of monarchy, monarchy, I am not a monarchist and the following is not a defense of monarchy. Instead, the position taken toward monarchy is this. If one must have a state defined as an agency that exercises compulsory territorial monopoly of ultimate decision-making, which is a jurisdiction and of taxation, then it is economically and ethically advantageous to choose monarchy over democracy. But this leaves the question open whether or not a state is necessary, i.e. if there exists an alternative to both monarchy and democracy. And this, you know, speculating about the future, maybe it is possible to have something (laughs) that's different than both with Bitcoin. Mm. Um, we talked a little bit about this last time, but like it may be too much to ask you to think, where does it go? What type of governance model do we have in the future? But do you think we discover something distinctly different from monarchy, democracy, and other forms of statism through Bitcoin? Uh, well, I certainly hope there is more experimentation with different mm-hmm. forms of governance. Um, well, I, I think one of the things that happens with Bitcoin is uh, because you don't need sort of like this economic block off um, that we have, right? Like we have these large contiguous territories that we call countries because in large part, you want sort of like economic um, sort of independence within that territory. And you you want people to be able to uh, do commerce very easily. Um, and you can have sort of one central bank do the monetary policy over that entire area. Um, and that is uh, very nice for the controllers, but it isn't 
uh, you know, like, and the people within it don't really have a choice because there are legal tender laws and things like that. But, um, you know, in a, in a sense, like, there's a reason why these are so big, because if they weren't that big, then it makes, you know, commerce a lot more difficult between those and so on. Um, but with Bitcoin, if you have this common currency, then you can have a lot smaller states. And, you know, that used to be the norm, especially in Europe, um, you know, the entire Holy Roman Empire. The joke is that it wasn't holy, it wasn't Roman, and it wasn't an empire. It was like a bunch of a uh, bunch, bunch of small states. I, I mean, we maybe we go back to something like that, where with hard money you have lots of experimentation, you have different forms of governance, and you try different things. Maybe you do have like a king of a city state or a queen of a city state, and you have uh, you try different things, see what works. Um, and I, I'm sure there would be a lot of learning and a lot of. Um, you know, watching to see what mm-hmm. works and so on, competition between jurisdictions and people mm-hmm. going towards where, you know, like things are working better. Um, there, There's nothing like experimentation to prove out like a workable model. Now, is it going to be exactly the one that Hapa like talks mm-hmm. about in the intro? Like, you know, where you have private police and private judges and private security force, private everything, basically. I'm sure somebody will try it. And if it's good, then the market will show. Um, but, uh, you know, the current system is, you know, where where we have a giant monopoly over a large territory and they have a giant moral hazard. But with Bitcoin, maybe, maybe you get smaller things where you can try stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we just need... Just like in every other market, more experimentation, iteration, freedom, really, to figure out what works. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So I want to continue with an excerpt here. So he says, rather, every state, regardless of its constitution, is economically and ethically deficient. Mm. Every monopolist, including one of ultimate decision making, is bad from the viewpoint of consumers. Monopoly is hereby understood in its classical meaning as the absence of free entry into a particular line of production. Hmm. Only one agency, A, may produce X. Any such monopolist is bad for consumers because, shielded from potential new entrants into his line of production, the price for his product will be higher and the quality lower than otherwise. Thus, the choice between monarchy and democracy concerns a choice between two defective social orders. Mm. And I'm reminded here of the 20th century where we thought we had the choice between communism or democracy. Like that was, that was it. Those are the whole choices on the table, but in truth, they're both defective social orders as as Mm. Hoppe is saying here. Um, And the sovereign individual makes the great point that, they're really just wealth strategies at the end of the day. Like, like every business or organization or institution, it's really just designed to increase the wealth of its shareholders. And in the case of communism versus democracy, democracy was just closer to the principles of free market of free markets. So it was able to let taxpayers accumulate more wealth. It gave them stronger private property rights to accumulate more wealth. Uh, before later taxing it away versus communism, try to just command and control the whole thing 
from the from the jump effectively so communism was outcompeted by democracy because democracy was closer to this free market model um what is the churchill quote where he says something like democracy is the worst form of government except all the others something yeah <laughs> that's right so i guess hoppe here is just saying like look i'm not pro monarchy i'm just saying it's the worst form of government except all the other ones yeah yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's right. And we do have sort of like a very romantic view of uh, democracy because we live under it and we've been awash in that propaganda. So I think it is rather difficult to reason effectively about it. Um, and it is very hard to reason about anything from which you've been sort of brainwashed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think Kappa does... Uh, pretty decent job of reasoning from first principles and showing how those lead to the conclusion that, you know, democracy ain't all that. That's, that, that's mm-hmm. basically his, uh, his, his contention. And I think, uh, especially the last year and a half, I think has shown like, man, there, there's some serious systemic flaws here that, mm-hmm. that, uh, that, we really need to work on in order to, um, you know, have more respect for natural rights and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess the big takeaway between his dismantling of democracy versus monarchy and the contention between Soviet Russia and the U S in the 20th century is that with stronger property rights or less blurry lines, we simply generate more wealth (laughs) and more peace, right? Because again, it's Mm -hmm. you're there's less to fight about if you're interdependent through trade. Mm. So, you know, what to take that lesson into Bitcoin, like to have this Mm. first property, right? That is as close to inviolable as possible. Um, the, the potential that that opens up for a future civilization or governance model is, is really exciting. Yeah, I think so. I, I would like to see more of that. Um, but yeah, I, it, it's, it, I, I, I don't know if it necessarily goes that fast um, societal change and especially like deprogramming from propaganda tends mm. to be very slow. Um, and we're still being inundated with propaganda. I mean, like it's crazy to me that a lot of people still believe that like cholesterol is the only thing that matters or something like they're, they're like that. That's the sort of stuff that's been like sort of embedded in us. Right. And uh, it's much deeper than something like that uh, for something like democracy. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, th- this is like generational stuff. We might need a lot of the people that believe in it to die before we really see change in this regard. Um, but who knows? Um, maybe Bitcoin sort of pops this uh, sort of like status bubble and. Mm we're allowed to exist in smaller communities um, that make for um, better, you know, communities, better civilization where we can build stuff up uh, instead of, you know, tear stuff down. Mm. 
Yeah, well said. Well, Jimmy, thank you so much, man. This book, I think, is really important. Even if you just read the introduction in chapter one, um, which you actually have not finished the book. I think you said chapter one's the best chapter in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important. I think people really need need to look into this. This the ways we derive our our knowledge determines how we organize ourselves in the world. Yeah, and it's uh, it's an important part of uh, it's an important exercise in being able to reason. Um, and you know, I, I think I've said this multiple times on this, like that that's what makes us human. Uh, mm-hmm. the, this ability to reason, this ability to really think through and make choices uh, based on that reason instead of just following our appetites. Uh, if we just follow our appetites or what's emo- what looks emotionally good to us or something like that, we just kind of become animals. Um, mm-hmm. And in that sense, I think democracy has this tendency towards propaganda, has this tendency towards in a way, de- dehumanizing us uh, and taking away that very human trait of being able to reason. Mm. Yeah, well said. My audience probably knows you really well, but just in <laughs> case they don't, can you let them know where to find you? Yeah, I'm uh, at Jimmy Song on Twitter. I have a newsletter, jimmysong.substack.com. I've uh, written a few books that you can go search for on Amazon, uh, Programming Bitcoin, The Little Bitcoin Book, and of course, Thank God for Bitcoin, which I wrote with Robert. Awesome, man. Thanks so much and uh, look forward to the next one. Same.